Now, that's what we're going to talk about this morning and before and right after lunch, we're going to talk about how to resolve. What are some tools for resolving conflict? And if we want to communicate, we can communicate. Uh, if we really want to work problems through the solutions, if we want to find God's solutions to our marriages, to our families, we can do that. Of course, we have to know the Word to do that. And that's why we're going to dig into the Word today and talk about embracing biblical communication. So, we're, if you have your notes there, uh, we're, we're talking about how do you help hurting marriages and families heal by learning to communicate biblically. Well, I hope you have your Bibles. We're going to be digging into it. If you don't, listen carefully. But there are problems that hinder unity and God-honoring communication. Uh, I want to just look into Scripture regarding those particular problems. We say first, the problems of a selfish heart. And if you'd go with me to some of these passages, you'll, you'll see. And what I want you to do, I want you to ask yourself the question, do I have a selfish heart? Because if communication breaks down, it may be because one of these things or more of these things uh, are the root issue for why your communication breaks down. We're going to look in Philippians chapter 2. And uh, we're looking at verse 3 where it says this. Do nothing from rivalry. Now that means do nothing with competition. Marriage isn't a competition between a husband and a wife. It's supposed to be a unity working together as a team. But Paul said to the Philippians, don't do anything through competition. You're not in competition. Don't do anything through conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. A selfish heart looks at themselves. A selfish heart says, it's all about me. It's me getting my way. I have wants, I have desires, and I'm going to get them. And I can get them however I want, say whatever I want, do whatever I want, in some cases throw whatever I want, kick whatever I want, punch whatever I want, I'm going to get it. Don't stand in my way. Well, they went, why can't we communicate? See. In, in James chapter 3, go to James chapter 3 if you have your Bible. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going to a lot of verses today, but I do want you to see the issues that hinder we're looking at James chapter 3 and verses 13 through 16. It reads this way. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousies and selfish ambitions, there's that word again, selfish heart. Selfish ambitions in your heart do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, 
but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Wow. For where jealousy and selfish ambitions exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So when either of us in a marriage approaches marriage selfishly, hey, it's all about me. It's about what I want, what I desire, and I'm going to get it, and don't stand in my way. Communication has already broken down. You know, I'm amazed at the parallel between today's culture and what Paul said to Timothy about what it's going to be like at the end. Now, I'm not a predictor of the end. But I'm just saying where I sit as a counselor and when I look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and it describes this, it's a prophetic statement of Paul to Timothy, his son in the faith. He said this, he said in the last days, now that's always referring to the time just before Christ returns. He said in the last days, perilous times are going to come. I don't even want to drive through a city these days. I, I, it's too dangerous, you know. I want, to, I want to conceal my weapon when I'm in places like that because I don't have one on, by the way. Uh, but I, because we're in perilous times. I don't know how much perilous they have to get, so that's the question. But listen, listen to what it says. In the last days, perilous times will come because men women are going to be lovers of themselves. It's all about me. And it goes and it describes what lover yourself looks like. Treacherous, conceited, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, lovers of money. And it goes on and on describing to me what I see coming into my office on a regular basis. Well, Selfish hearts. Go to Proverbs 30, and you see there in, verse, in chapter, uh, chapter 30 and verse 32, it talks about the mouth that speaks foolishness. In Proverbs 30, verse 32, it describes, if you have been foolish, exalting yourself. There it goes, that exalting yourself. If, if in a marriage one person's exalted, it's more about me, it's all about me, you will get nowhere exalting yourself. For if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. <coughs> I don't know what happened there, but that's okay. I'm, I'm really talking back to myself. But put your hand on your mouth. See, it'd be better you say nothing than to say something that's going to naturally lead to greater division. Destructive anger. Go, to, go back to uh, Proverbs uh, 29 and you look at verse 22. And it says this, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. You know, there is a, there's a verse in Proverbs 2, in Proverbs chapter 13 that says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Now I want to do an experiment with you. 
because I'm going to prove that to you. You ready? What's the matter with you people? I can't understand why you're just staring at me like that. Or this. Hi, I'm Dr. Alton, and I'm here to minister to you. And immediately, things calm down. I, I've been in elders' meetings where a man, a particular man, would come in and he thought he could ramrod every point he wanted through. And he would start to yell and be angry. And I would turn to him and I would say, Sir, you can't talk to us like that. We are co-equals as elders. And I would start to whisper. And from his vibration, you can feel that. That's why it stirs up. It can even be a physiological thing in us. But start to whisper. Then it would, I'm not going to yell again. <laughs> but some people, they, they, they rule their house by anger. They think they're going to get their way. And it's James 1.20. We'll look at it a little later. But it says, the anger of man never produces the righteousness that God desires. Say never, class. Never. Never. never means this universal symbol for never, nothing. It doesn't get anywhere. It's the proud man who thinks that by raising his voice with anger, proud man, I'm using that generically. Some women are pretty loud too. They think that by anger, they're going to get somewhere. They're proud because God says you can't. You're not going to get what you want in a righteous result by raising your voice in anger. When people get angry, when, I, when they're dealing with communication, I say, you might as well stop talking. Because you might get what you want, but that's not the God's righteous solution to it. Okay? Destructive anger. Closed ears. Isaiah is the one that said, talk about, he talks about people with dull hearts, with ears that can barely hear. You know, some people try to resolve problems by doing this. And they don't hear anything. We're going to teach you how to listen today through one of our exercises. Some people have stubborn wills. In Psalm 81, 12, it says, So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsel. To follow their own counsel. Well, we know the futility of that. Many of us have memorized what? Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. What's it say? Trust, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? Don't lean on your own. Don't lean on your own counsel. Especially if it's counsel that's coming from pride because somebody's going to yell it out, yell out the answer. And then some of the problems that hinder unity is idolatrous goals. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul was talking about being covetous. And in that passage, he says something that will help us under, grasp what, uh, what, what this covetousness
coveter really is like. And in Ephesians chapter 5, he says this. And listen, because a coveter, remember, thou shalt not covet, one of the big ten. Thou shalt not covet. Well, what's the problem of coveting? Coveting says, I'm going to get something. I want it. Don't stand in front of me. I'm going to get it even if I have to be sinful in the way I get it. In Ephesians 5, it says this. It says, Yeah. For, uh, read from verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater. A coveter in Ephesians is an idolater. At some point today, we're going to talk a little bit about idolatry because we all have a problem with it. You say, well, I don't have anything structural sitting in my home. No, these are talking about idols that we have in our heart, idols of wants and desires. And if we want them so bad, if we want something so bad, we're willing to sin in our communication to get it, or sin in doing anything to get it, we have become an idolater because that want or desire has been raised up so high that it's like we're worshiping it as a god. And that want or desire takes control and sets up its own theology in our life. I'll explain that more later. But right now, we want to look at point two in your outline. And it says, God's Word sets up the stage for communication to unify marriages and families. Communication in the Bible was to bring people together so that they could communicate in a way to recognize the problem and resolve it. Now, I'm going to come around here. I want you to uh, think about the book of Ephesians, okay? Because that's where we're going to camp out for the most the rest of the morning. Now, when you look at the book of Ephesians, how, how, many, how many chapters in the book of Ephesians class? Six, right. So we got six chapters. And Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are very theological. In other words, there's theology there. Uh, and this theology in the first three chapters talks all about God and who, who He is and who we are in Him. The, the book is divided in half. And in chapter 4, verse 1, you have a word, therefore. And if some of you that have been in Bible college training or theological training, we know that the statement, if you, there is a therefore, see what the therefore is therefore. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, many times. Okay. Well, this is one of those, the therefore is there for a reason, okay? 
Because the second part of this, if this is theological, chapters four, five, and six are very applicational. Because of this, then this. Chapters one, two, and three are motivational because the knowledge of who God is and who we are in Jesus Christ is that which ought to motivate us to live out the very practical principles that we find in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Now, truth motivates. See that corner there? When I point there today, that's where the cross is. That's where Jesus died on the cross. That's where he climbed on your cross and died in your place. That's where the substitutionary atonement of Jesus took place. He took our sin, we received his righteousness. That is the greatest deal that was ever presented to us. Wow, can you think about it? Think about the passion of the Christ. Have you ever saw that film? I've seen it once, I won't watch it again. But it was a great picture of what my Savior did for me. I wept through that, okay? You don't eat popcorn and drink Coke when you're watching that film, do you? See? But that has to be it. Because what chapters one, two, and three are saying to us ought to motivate us. It's theological about who we are in Christ. And then he says, therefore, it's just natural that this, what I'm gonna to say to you next should be something you really wanna do. These truths that come in four, five, and six become something very practical and applicational, but only if I have a motivation of chapters one, two, and three. If you're here today, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You've never seen the cross applied for you. You need to see that. You may say, why don't I have any motivation to really make these changes or embrace these truths that, that Alton and Pastor Andrew and other pastors are, are why? Because it, I'm so consumed with myself. When you really move away from consumption of yourself to seeing who Jesus is, you say, whether I'm at home in the body or away from the body, I make it my aim to please him. That's what 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says. Because we're all, excuse me, I need some water. <coughs> because we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to give account of ourselves for what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. Thanks. Okay, so look at Ephesians chapters one through six, and we're saying motivational, theological, what I know about God, what I know about Christ, what I know about my salvation, what I know about being in Him, 
ought to just naturally flow to an application of it in my life and the practical principles that I'm going to live out. But if you don't have this, that's why you're struggling with this. Yes? Watch out for the speaker cord. I don't want you to trip. Thanks. I probably might do it, but it, I'll probably pull the speaker cord out of the camera before it will trip me, but that might be. By the way, this is my wife, Sherry. Stand up, Sherry. Yeah, everybody clap, please. <laughs> She's my better half. Yeah. Uh, so, when, when you look at Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, we're seeing these words. Look on your notes. It says, Godly communication's goal is unity through Christ, both vertical and horizontal. You know, people, people uh, in secular counseling will say, you know, you, you ought to learn how to communicate with your husband, with your wife. It would make your home better. It, it'll, it'll make you uh, be, be better uh, friends to one another. Uh, you'll be able to solve the issue uh, better in your life. And your home is going to be nice and your children are going to be nice. And they try to motivate you on the horizontal because they don't have that peace, that peace. They, they, they don't have that. They can't motivate it because, hey, somebody did this for you. How will you change for him? You're in him. Amen. They don't have that. They can't say, hey, there's a God for you to glorify because it, you're on this earth and it isn't about you. It's about Him. We're just here on this earth to glorify Him. Now, in doing that, we can still have a good time enjoying the beauty of our creation and the beauty of our earth, but it's still about Him. When we make it about us, all bets are off with communication. Okay. But look what it says. Just read down through these quickly. Godly communication's goal is unity through Christ, both vertical and horizontal. Chapter 1, verse 10 says, we're united in all things in Christ. He says, we're to endeavor to keep the unity, chapter 4, verse 3. To all who attain the unity of faith, we are members of the same body, the concept of being together. Two shall become one, unity. Well, godly communication's goal is unity. Right after this, chapter 4 comes. And all these principles we're going to look at today are right out of chapter 4, and it's going to make application and make it very practical. How do we keep the unity in these relationships? Now, he talks about communication first. Then he talks about the husband-wife role. And he says this, if you can't communicate, there's not going to be unity. He goes on, he says, now there's a role for a husband, there's a role for a wife. If you don't know it, or if you, if you know it and you won't live it, you're not going to have unity. Then he goes and he talks about parents and children. Parents are to train their children, children are to honor and obey their parents. If they know those rules and they're not fulfilling it, there's going to be disunity in the family. And there's a priority of the relationship. It's God, wife, children, church, job. You get those, if you get your sport, whatever else you want to put on the list, anything that comes up here as number one is going to break the unity because God directs everything else. And people in today's world, they have their priorities of those, those different things that are very clear in Scripture. 
One, two, three, four, five. You get anything up here. You get sport up here. Some families are totally controlled by sport. They're, they're, they, 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 they come home from work, first thing they do, grab dinner, they don't have devotions, they go, go and they do sport. Now there's nothing wrong with sport, but if sport consumes us, or whatever, maybe it's hunters in Michigan. Maybe that's the, oh, now I touch on base. <laughs> ah, all right, so be careful. Anything that takes number one is competing against the unity. And we could go on with other things. That was Paul's focus. Chapters one, two, and three was unity. Chapters four, five, and six are the things that will either make it or break it. Godly communication would be motivated as each one walks in their calling. What were you called? Well, here's what you're called. There's a list of them. You're blessed in Christ. You're chosen by him. You're loved by him. You're predestined and adopted through Jesus Christ. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. And you have this inheritance, this great inheritance of an eternity with him. But if you, those words don't ring somewhere in your heart, in your mind, then you need to be introduced to who he is. You need to be introduced to that, see. Godly communication thrives in the right atmosphere. Look in chapter, go, go back to Ephesians. We're going to camp there. But in chapter 4, in uh, verse 2 and 3, it says this, with all humility, uh, walk worthy, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You endeavor to keep the unity, unity with the Spirit, the unity also in your marriage. Well, there's, there's got to be a right atmosphere. If, if I had, this is a candle, see it? See how bright it is? A nice flame, right? If I take a mason jar and I invert it over the candle, what happens? It goes out. Why does it go out? No oxygen. No oxygen. In the atmosphere around that flame isn't conducive for a flame. Now, some people have atmosphere in their homes that isn't conducive to good communication. And if you're going to say, what should the atmosphere be like? This passage is telling us this. Look what it says. It says, true humility. Look at our notes. Humility is the willingness to lay aside personal desires that stand in the way of God's desires being fulfilled. In James 4, we see it insists that believers repent of self-centered desires with God's graciously, with God graciously blessing true humility, but resisting proud, the pride. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. So if there isn't, if there's pride in a relationship, who is going to recognize that they did anything wrong? How many problems does a proud person have? None, exactly. See, The humble person is the one that says, you know, dear, I, I was wrong. Please forgive me. 
See, that's where it would go. In a home where good communication exists, the words, will you forgive me, are going to be heard. If that hasn't been heard very much in your communication, then somehow somebody's stuffing it and too proud to admit that they've done something wrong by the standard of God. There's got to be gentleness in this atmosphere. Look what it says. Gentleness is the opposite of being harsh, rude, or domineering. A gentle person takes care not to insult, belittle, or demean others. When addressing sin in others, a gentle spirit will be firm, but never attacking. There's got to be a patience. Here, look, look what it says in verse 2. It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing one another in love. If you would just translate that normally, it would say, with patience and patience. But when you see these two words together, patience says, be patient with a problem. Bearing one another says, be patient with a person who's trying to change the problem. Biblical love is to be patient with the issues and the sin that a person is trying to change. Patience comes when we remember that the heart and habits take time to change for all people. So we've got to be patient with a problem that a person is trying to change. We have to be patient with the person too. Bearing with one another in love. Biblical love is to be patient, bearing with a person who has repented and is in the process of change. Long-suffering. Therefore, we are to be patient with the person who is working on the change and patient with the issues they are working on to change. You get a chance to talk to my wife. You can find out all the, the, the little things that Dr. Ralchin does and has done through the 50 years of marriage. But one of the things that I had a problem with uh, back in the early part of our marriage was uh, what I do with my dirty socks. I, I was on the other side of the bed. Nobody could see them. Somebody walked by, a guest walked by. They couldn't see the five pair of dirty socks on the side of the bed. When I go to bed at night, the last thing I take off is my socks. I don't like to have cold feet walking around. So I drop them on the side of the bed. Next day, Drop them on the side of the bed. Come Friday, five pair on the side of the bed. I turn to my wife and I say, dear, I don't have any socks. And she says, yeah, I know. They're all on the side of your bed. <laughs> Go pick a few of them, dirty ones. It's not my responsibility to take your socks and put them in the hamper. It's yours. Okay, well then let's figure out how I'm going to do that. So we devised this rule that if there were three pair of socks on the side of the bed, and she saw them there. She could take those socks and put them under my pillow. <laughs> so, fourth night, there are my socks on the side of the bed. I get in bed, you know, I, I want to get out of bed when I'm at And I put my hand, hand under my pillow. Uh, five. And I, we had a rule. I couldn't just throw them on the floor again. And, and I had to get up immediately. It was my reminder to get up immediately, take them and put them in the hamper. Now, did that break my habit? Yeah, it did. Now, very seldom are there any socks on the side of the bed, especially we're now living in a motor home, and that's our home. That's, we sold our house, and we bought this, and we, uh, I see my socks there. Once we draw the bed up, and it's a Murphy bed, you put it in the wall, and 
it's very obvious. See, my socks are right in the middle of the dining room or the living room then, see. So right in the kitchen. It's the kitchen too. So uh, it's a stink. But we, we broke, broke that habit. Yeah. She's been, she was patient with me with the socks. But she was patient with me as I was trying to break that habit. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about patience and forbearance. Patience with the issue, but patience with the person who's trying to break it, but have a plan. She used to, we, we had a house. We're back to it right now. But we, we like houses that, where there's a men's sink and a woman's sink, you know, and enough space to put your stuff out. If you have one of those, it's probably prevented a lot of arguments between the two of you. <laughs> But, you know, when you have a small sink and, and she brings out her lipstick and her rouge and her powder and all these things and she puts them on this small sink, if she forgets to put them away, then what do I do with my shaving cream and my razor and my toothbrush and other things that I'm going to use to get ready? So it used to frustrate us both. So we devised a way to remind one another that we're trying to break this habit. And we didn't get mad at one another, we kind of chuckled with one another about it because, oh, I got caught again. Look, here's my shaving cream out. But the way I would know it is this, I'd go to work and she'd see the shaving cream out and she would take this can and she'd go <laughs> on the mirror right in front of the, over the sink, there it was. So when I came home from work, there was this dried up shaving cream and, and, and my stuff was still there. So I had to get and put it up in there, all right? And I, then what I have to do, I had to clean the mirror. If I saw her stuff out, I could get her lipstick and I could go. <laughs> no, no, I didn't do that. That would be a waste of lipstick. But a, a little X about five foot high right on the center of the mirror. And she would have to clean the mirror, but she'd have to put her stuff away. And we would laugh at it. So you can laugh. You look, marriage is fun. It can be fun. If you're not having fun, come see me. I'll tell you why. And it's probably because of what we've already said. In these days, we're in a culture of self. We're in a culture of our loving me. And it's not, a, it's not a team. It's like a competition. It's rivalry. You won't get anywhere with that, see? Now, some of you are younger, some of you are older. I trust you've had a blast with, with all the years you've been married. Here, I'm gonna go trip over this wire again. That's okay. Yeah. So let's look at this. We're, we're, we're working through these rules of biblical communication they honor God, they promote unity in marriage and families. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, and we're looking at verse 25 through 32. We're going to look at each verse individually. Ephesians 4, chapter uh, 25, and it reads like this. Therefore, putting away falsehood, let each one of you, Speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Look at that. Why do we speak the truth? Well, we're members one of another. To speak the truth to one another demonstrates an understanding and a desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. What does that mean? Somebody tell me, why do we speak the truth? Give me some reasons. Why do we speak the truth? Anybody? We're commanded to. We're commanded to speak the truth. Yeah, we are. So we're doing it out of obedience to a law. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. 
Good start. Why do we speak the truth? What? It's hard to remember all the lies. It's hard to remember all the lies. That's a practical reason. But I'm thinking of more of a theological reason. Why do we speak the truth? We love Because we love the truth. Because God is truth. Okay, we do it because we love it. Yeah? That's closer. You were created in the image of who? God. Is God truth? See, it's because he is truth. When we live the truth, we reflect who we really were created in the image of. We look like him. We fell. We're trying to get back to look like the image that we were created in. And it wasn't a facial image. It was a character image. It was a quality of who he was. And God is a God of truth. So we speak truth because God is truth and we look like him. Now, what happens when we lie? Who is, who, whose father are we looking like when we lie? Yeah, Satan. He's the father of lies. So you, when, when you, you have a choice of speaking the truth or telling a lie, you want to determine, who do I want to look like today? Today I'm going to look like the devil. Let me tell you a good lie, see? <laughs> or today I want to look like Jesus who is the way and the truth. He, it's the personification of truth as to why we speak the truth. We don't lie because we don't want to look like we love the wrong father, but sometimes we do. Look what it says. To speak the truth to one another demonstrates an understanding of a desire to be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8, 29, whom God foreknew, he predestined that you would be conformed to his son's image. I should, if I come back here, I should be able to tell Oren, Oren, you look more like Jesus today when I met you first time. See, you look more like Jesus today than that day when we first met. Because if I understand what we're supposed to be doing in our Christian walk is looking like somebody else. And the way we communicate determines who we look like. Speaking the truth builds trust and unity. Lying conforms us to the image of the father of lies. Lying or half-truths break trust and disunity. Unintentionally manipulating the truth because of self-serving motives. There's that self issue again. Spinning a situation to fulfill selfish purposes. Deceptively indicating a different conclusion than the true picture. Making a vow and not keeping it. All fit under the category of lies. Now, each one of you that are married here, I, I guess you all are, um, he made vows. We're on our way to head back toward Charleston after I go to Kansas City for an ACBC board meeting next week. But we're going back because I did, gave premarital counseling to a couple. And we're going to perform their ceremony there in Charleston. But in the marriage ceremony, there's vows written. Better, worse rich or poor, sickness, health, death, till we part. Now I know some people in this room may have gone through some 
really hurtful divorce. And I'm not trying to be insensitive to you. But God says we have vows we have to keep and we need to be speaking the truth when we say that to one another. And the reason why some people divorce and it's legit, some are legitimate, uh, is for God's given reason. Some do it because they're selfish. I think I'm gonna try it again with somebody else. And seldom works, okay, with that motivation. Now we've seen people who've gotten divorced for the wrong reason, got marvelously saved or got recommitted to Christ and, and they're walking with him and praise God that God overrules sometimes the foolishness of what we do. But we're to be honest. That's for number, rule number one. Everybody say this with me, be honest. Be honest. Say it again, be honest. Because be before, before the end of the day, you're gonna have five to memorize. Ready? Be honest. Be honest. Got, you got that, all right? Number two. Number two says keep current. The verse says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So the second rule, keep current. It's talking about a time frame. We're to resolve conflicts quickly by the end of the day to establish peace and to demonstrate the desire to avoid bitterness. But when we don't, when we're angry at the end of the day, or for the angry at the end of two days. So Jesus said, sufficient unto today are the evils of the day. So handle today's evils today. Don't let them carry over to tomorrow. But when we do, anger leads to bitterness. We're gonna talk about that more when we talk about conflict resolution. Bitterness leads to vengeance. Vengeance leads to hatred. So I'd rather you be angry at me than bitter. And I'd rather you be bitter at me than vengeful, because vengeful means you're already thinking about how you're going to get even. And I'd rather you be vengeful to me than hateful, because when you get to that hate level, you, if I'm walking down the road and you have a car, you can have a choice whether you can run over me or, or go around me. And the only reason why you're going to go around me is you may have to go to jail, and that, you don't want to be inconvenienced yourself. But I have no worse to you at that point. You have no worth. When a marriage gets to a hateful level, there's some real dominant things happening in that person's heart. And they need to backtrack to deal with the issues that prompted the anger. And they can be solved. So we're going to look at when sinful anger and resentment take root, man's objectivity to promote unity is greatly reduced. We already said that the proud man tries to beat God when God said, the anger of man will never produce the righteousness that God desires. Ignoring problems will cause them to grow, creating a division in the body of Christ, just like Yodi and Syntyche. Giving the devil a foothold allows him to put a wedge between believers and hinder God's purposes for unity. It says, be angry, don't sin, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath, and don't give the devil a foothold. Don't let the devil get into your marriage. What he wants to happen is he wants you to let problems mount up and mount up and mount up and mount up. 
when that happens, bitterness enters. See, the devil has been out to divide since the garden. He succeeded through communication, through faulty communication, through Eve believing something that wasn't true. But he did it through words. We can do the same thing. If we let problems mount, that's exactly what the devil wants. We're going to get to the point where we have now not just a molehill, but we have a mountain. A mountain of issues that day after day after day. One of, one of the counselors I know talks about a, a couple that came into his office and the, the man was sitting there and, and the, the wife had a notebook. And she threw the notebook down on the counselor's desk and said, those are the problems of my husband for the last two years. And the husband kind of slunk down in his chair thinking he was going to get beat over the head with this notebook. And, he says, and the counselor gently said to the lady, ma'am, that, that may be true. But the very fact that you've kept a record of wrongs that have gone unresolved for two years shows also the problem that you have in this marriage. And the husband kind of got out of his slinky position and stood up and said, well, maybe I'm going to get where it's not just me in this marriage. It's both of us. So you, you give the devil a foothold by letting things mount up. It says at the end of the day, you ought to have an opportunity in your marriage to say, honey, do we have any problems today? Is there anything we need to resolve? Are you going to be going to bed angry? Am I going to be going to bed angry? Let's resolve it because tomorrow, if there's anger tonight, there'll be anger in the morning and it will fuel whatever problems there are going to be tomorrow and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and pretty soon we've got a wedge and the devil has got a foothold in our marriage. How many here today want to raise your hand and say, I want the devil to have a foothold in my marriage. Hallelujah. Come on, let's do it. Raise your hand. You want it? No, you don't. See. But here's the thing. We do. We do. Some bigger than others. Some to the point where they're ready to walk out. I got couples living in separate, sleeping in separate rooms, separate beds. They pass each other in the hallway. Might say hi. Might say nothing. What do you do with that? See, who's in charge? They both claim to be believers, but who's in control of their life? See, is he? Is he in control? Is what he did in dying for that sin of passing in the hallway? Is, 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 are they really looking at the cross? See? Well, look what it says. We're going to keep current. Resolve quickly these conflicts by the end of your day to establish peace and to demonstrate a desire to avoid bitterness. Go down to the bottom. It says... When issues take time to resolve, commit to love one another even in differences. Desiring to work through the problem together, then schedule a time as soon as possible to talk peaceably about the issue and do it. Well, we want to keep current. We had a situation, we, we taught these rules to our children when they could start to talk. This isn't just five rules of communication for mom and dad. This is 
the Alchin family rules of communication. And whatever your name is, you ought to have that. Maybe you have a little plaque with them there or just a sheet of paper that has them. But be honest, keep current, attack problems, not people. Act, don't react, listen attentively. Because if you can't communicate, you can't deal with anything. Communication comes first. That's why we're dealing with that today. My, uh, I had the opportunity of marrying all three of my children. And <laughs> I gave all three of them and their spouses six, 10 hours of premarital counsel. You can ask their spouses what they think about that, but I, am I still looking pretty there? Is it okay? All right, super, good. Yeah. Uh, so, but at the wedding, to show you how important I thought this was, I went up to my kids or they were standing in front of them and I took off my, my mic and I put it up to the mouth of my son and daughter and I said, repeat for this congregation, I think there were about 300 people there, repeat for this congregation the five rules of communication. They expected it. They're, I didn't do it to their spouse because I you know, didn't want them to stumble, but I did have them memorize it. And they went through that and they said to the congregation, these are the five rules. We had opportunities in our home at dinner where if anybody had a problem with anybody, they could say, Dad, I have a problem. I'd like to talk with you. We'd go to my room. Or the boys would say, we have a little problem. Or go to your room. If you need somebody to come in and referee it and work it out, we, I will. Or maybe my daughter had a problem with my wife or with me or with one of her brothers. And the unity in our home and the joy and happiness in our home through keeping open, godly communication Oh, we weren't perfect, please. Uh, I'm not raising myself up as a perfect man and she's not a perfect woman. Or, you're not, right? Shake me, no, you're not. See, but, but we, we have had a great marriage because we've, we learned these principles early on. First year of marriage, whew, I, I, I was a clam-upper. Any of you are clam-uppers? In other words, when a problem comes, you, just, you, you don't talk. Uh, that's where I was. And uh, she wasn't a blow-upper, but she just didn't talk if I didn't talk. But I, for three days, I, would, I wouldn't say a thing to her. I was, go I was going through seminary, by the way. I was this holy seminary guy, right? <laughs> but I wasn't talking to my wife for three days until I realized how terrible that was. I asked forgiveness, and I changed. And so can you if you're a clam-upper because climbing up doesn't solve the problem. It just stops the conversation. So we're going to be angry, but not sin. Saying that we can have this energy of anger and God gives it to us to solve the problem in a way that's biblically directed. So be honest, keep current, okay? So uh, let's repeat those with me. Be honest, keep current. Again, be honest, keep current. Some of you aren't involved. Be honest and keep current. Come on, let's do it again. Be honest, keep current. Very good. Okay, rule three, attack problems and not people. Now, this comes from the verse in Ephesians 4, which says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You want to give grace to somebody? 
comes through the words that come out of your mouth. No corrupt, corrupt words tear down. Destroy a self-image. Edifying words. Words that build up. Grow an appropriate, godly self-image. But then it says, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed by the day of redemption. Look at the, look at the words under, then we'll talk about this more. Put off unwholesome speech, any choice of words that tear down an individual, but put on edifying speech, words that build others up. Recognize unwholesome, rotten speech for what it is. Really, it's a weapon to cut down another person so you can exalt your own honor and desires. There's that selfishness again. When families learn to edify one another by gracious communication, they don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by hurting one another. The word corrupt in this uh, scripture, this verse, is a word that comes from a Greek word that talks about rotting flesh. And it, you, you have roadkill here. You, you see a bloated whatever it is along the road and eventually it explodes or somebody hits it with their car again and you can't see it again. But you know, the flies get in, the maggots get in and, and, and that's what's rotting flesh to the point where as it rots or as it gets run over, you say, well, was that a cat? Was that a dog? Was that a possum? What was, what, was that a raccoon? Can't tell anymore because he's been so corrupted that you can't see. So what do you do? It's be like, reaching down and grabbing a handful of maggots and going to Orin. And he does this. I can't stand you. You make me sick. Why did I ever marry you? You're such stupid. You, you, and you're pulling maggots words. Get the picture. That's roadkill. That's, that's corrupting. Wow. <laughs> my, my wife and I went to a Jay Leno show once. <laughs> and uh, we had front row seats because I knew somebody that helped that show. And that night they had on this show maggot-eating college students. They ate maggots. They'd go find roadkill, they'd clean off the maggots, and they'd put them in a, 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 in a on a cookie sheet and in the oven they'd dry them out until they were crispy. And then they would take some Rice Krispies and some maggots and they'd mix them together, put marshmallows, and it was marshmallow Rice Krispie maggot treats. I kid you not. And when you look in it, the only reason why you could see which one was a maggot, which one was a Rice Krispie, is the maggots had little rings on them because they were like worms. They came at, at the break when there was a commercial, they came up and offered my kids a maggot-eating square of Rice Krispies. Do you think we ate it? No, we didn't eat it, but we really did get it. But it would you like to eat some maggots today? Hmm. It grieves the Holy Spirit of God when we say things to people that destroy them, take away the grace. Your words, extremely important. They have to be words of building up and edifying. Who wants to grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Anybody? 
Who wants to give the devil a foothold? Anybody? But sometimes we do. And when we do, we ought to be the first to say, please forgive me. Now, your chance to do some things. I want you to stay with your, 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 your wife and your husband. But I want you to go in your packet to the back. And I want you to go to something called how do I love you? Let me count the ways. And this is a sheet that will help you edify one another. So what I'm asking you to do is this. How do you love the person you're sitting alongside of? Or this. What do you appreciate about them? Now there's categories here. And what I'm going to ask you to do is just for a few minutes, you personally take that sheet that you have and write down what are two things that I appreciate spiritually about my wife? What are two things? Or what are two things I appreciate spiritually about my husband? What do I appreciate socially about my wife? Or intellectually about my husband? And emotionally, physically, turn over the page and you see vocationally, financially, they have good financial habits, keep the budget, vocationally, they work hard, domestically, they do jobs around the house, ecclesiastically, they, they come to church every Sunday, aesthetically, they appreciate beauty, parentally, they take good care of our children in additional ways. I want you to take some time right now and list two for each one of those for your spouse. Don't look on your spouse's paper, but just list two things down on each one of those categories. And if we need some pens, which we might need, anybody need something to write with? All right, well, here is my only writing thing. But Oh, we're getting them, okay, good. Yeah, jot down two things under each category. Okay, well, let's, let's work with what we have. Now, here's, here's, here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to turn to one another. And I want you, I'm going to ask the husband to turn to the wife first. And I want you to tell your wife what you appreciate about her. Now, don't do this. I like her hair, I like your lips. Uh, uh, I like the bike ride. Uh, don't read the list. Just let the point on the list be that which stimulates your thought about what you like to tell why you like to do it. We like the bike ride. We carry our bikes on the back of our motorhome. And every time, anytime we get this relatively flat land, we like to go out and take a ride. Later on this afternoon, we're going to run over to, to the dollar store and we're going to take our bikes and do that and just have fun. But. Good. Your time, men, to your wives. I want to hear Jabber going here. Turn to your wife and tell her what you appreciate about her, and, it's, and go go down through the things you wrote on the list. Ready? It's your turn. Talk. Okay. Uh, I heard. I would love to know what some of the giggling was about. <laughs> so, who's who's doing that? 
Where's that high? Is that you? Oh, is it you? Somebody had a high-pitched big giggle. I'd love to know what that was about. But this is your personal edification, so we'll let you go with it. Um, okay, now, why is your turn? Turn to your husbands. Tell them what you appreciate about them. Okay, well, thank you for that good exercise. Listen, I hope you feel good because what you just did was very obedient to the truth we just learned. You just edified one another. You did. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of the most corrupt word you can say to one another and say it to one another right now, okay? No. Now, what are you saying, Dr. Alton? Right, don't, because how many words can we say that corrupt one another? How many? None, zero, exactly. However, I, I was a joke. <laughs> You see, <laughs> you know, we've had some very sensitive times in our offices. And uh, typically I give a husband and wife each a list and I say, go home and fill this out. But don't show it to your spouse. And they come in and they sit in front of my desk. And I say, now, for the first part of this session, I want you to go through those lists like you guys just did. And, and express to each other what you appreciate, what you love about that person. And invariably, one or sometimes both of them, by the time their spouse has been through the list, there are tears running down their faces. Because in some marriages, it's more, this is not what happens. It's more, this is what happens on the edifying side and they find more corrupt. Look, we aren't bad people. We are sinners, yes. But typically we're not bad people. We have things that are qualities about us. Yes, we have the negatives, but if we can affirm, we can motivate more of the negatives to positives by positive communication, edifying, building the other up. So repeat with me, class. Be honest, Be honest. Keep, current. keep current, attack problems, not people. The person is never the problem. The person is never the problem. You say, what are you talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. It is what a person does that's the problem. I am not the problem, my socks were the problem. I'm the one that had to change it. It is either what a person does or doesn't do. We call it sins of commission. He who breaks the law commits sin. Or we call it sins of omission. He that knows to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. So if I know to put my socks in the, dirty, in the hamper and I don't do it, it's wrong. I'm taking advantage of my wife. So I can change the things I don't do and I can do, stop doing the things that I shouldn't. I can change that, but me, 
I'm who I am. Yes, I'm growing in character, hopefully, still. But the person is not the problem. It's what they do or don't do. See, if I, if I stood here for the next 10 minutes and said absolutely nothing, I'm not a problem to you because of what I'm doing. I'm a problem to you because I was asked to come here and speak to you. And if I cease to do it, I'm sinning by the sin of omission. Okay? That's what we do. So we're going to attack the problem, not the person. Verse 4, or rule 4 says, uh, act and don't react. And we want to have a course of action. The reactions are found in verse 31, the first verse there. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking slander be put away from you, along with every form of malice. The actions be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, as God in Christ forgave you. The reactions to put off. Put off malicious speech and behavior, rage, explosive agitation, clamor, which is loud protest, slander, damaging another's reputation, all intended to hurt another person. But put on actions, Christ-like actions. Acting like Christ in graciousness, thoughtful speech, behaviors. Gracious speech is characterized by kindness and compassion and forgiveness. When families work through offenses and repent, asking forgiveness for sinful words and actions, then reconciliation and unity are exalted. You know, the, the first, first rule uh, that said, be honest, um, just before that it talks about, uh, it talks about lowliness and meekness and humility. Humility has to be part of our communication, but so does forgiveness. Because whenever we're dealing with an issue, one of us are wrong. And one of us needs to be willing to turn to the other and say, will you forgive me? Rule 5 says this, listen attentively. Know this, my beloved brother, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So we're going to listen we're going to listen attentively. Repeat after me, class. Act, don't react. Act, don't react. Listen, attentively. listen attentively. Okay. Listening is foundational for gaining knowledge and understanding in my relationships. Attentive listening and active listening are skills that must be learned. Ask, where is the speaker going with his train of thought? Don't waste time passing judgment on the speaker's motives. Don't be thinking of how to respond to what the speaker is saying for the purpose of proving him right or wrong instead of listening to understand. What emotional impact is the topic of the conversation having on the speaker? What desire is the person expressing? And is there a request for action? Ask questions that seek accurate and adequate information or to clarify. Stop all activities that are distracting and give attention and eye contact. Hey, repeat after me, class. Be honest. Be honest. Keep, current. Keep current. Attack problems, not people. Act, don't react. And listen attentively. Very good. All right. Super. Now, I want, you to, I want to teach you another tool. 
and it's called a, a three-two-one. Okay. A three-two-one is a communication tool, and it's in your thing. But let me explain it to you because we're, we're running short on time, and I really want you to do this. Three-two-one represents minutes. And whenever there's a problem or an issue you want to discuss, you ought to, you ought to be doing a 3-2-1. A 3-2-1, what it does, it, it places our cards on the table face up so we know what each other's thinking and feeling about a certain situation. It doesn't have to be a problem. Some, some couples do a 3-2-1 when the husband comes home from work, they sit at the table and they spend the day, uh, uh, the first part of uh, the time together, maybe 12, 15 minutes, doing a 3-2-1. And it's typically this. You're sitting down where you are, you're going to turn to the other, and for three minutes, you're going to answer or discuss or communicate about a certain issue. It may just be about your day. The other person is going to listen attentively. That's all that person's going to do. They don't have to prepare their defense. They don't have to comment on what you have to say. All we're saying is this. If I am talking to you do you value my words? If I'm talking to my wife and I have three minutes, she's going to zero in on me for three minutes because she loves me and she values every word that comes out of my mouth. At the end of those three minutes, she is going to stay, state back to me exactly what I said to her. Now, we're already assuming because it's two minutes that she's already forgotten a minute. Okay, you got that? The one minute is where I get to say, oh, but you forgot this, or let me clarify this. Because after three minutes, that's a, that's a lot to remember, right? Then you've communicated your thoughts and feelings about a topic. Then you flip-flop. Then the wife talks to the husband for three minutes. Oh, my goodness. I have to remember three minutes. Yeah, I value every word you say because I love you. Three minutes, and I'm going to state back two minutes. If I had a photographic memory and could say exactly everything she said, it would take me three minutes. But I don't. So it's only going to take me two. Maybe some of us one and a half. Who knows? But we'll, we'll try it, all right? And then one minute back to clarify. When you're dealing with a problem with the three, two, one, you're not trying to think about countering what the person is saying. You're just listening so that you can clarify, totally understand what their point of view is, what they're thinking and feeling about a certain situation. Once you both have done that, then you're able to take it to a conference table. And we're going to talk about that uh, uh, this afternoon more. So here, here's where we're going to start. I have the question for you that you're going to, and this isn't a problem question. This is just a, a a good thing to discuss, to express, you're expressing your thoughts and your feelings about a certain situation. So, here's the question you're going to discuss. Women are going to talk first, men are going to listen attentively for three minutes. Then the man is going to talk back to the wife for two, what he heard you say verbatim, if you could do it, which is impossible. And then, the, the, then uh, the wife gets to clarify the one minute. So here's, here's your question. Get ready to do it. What changes in our marriage would you like to see as a result of being here today? What changes in our marriage would you like 
to see as a result of this seminar today. Okay? Got it? Who's going to start? The lady's going to start. You're going to talk to your husbands. Husbands, get ready to be attentive. Listen to every word she says because you're going to have to say it back to her. And in doing so, you're telling her, I value your words because I love you. Got it? Go. What changes in your marriage would you like to see as a result of this seminar today? Okay, now men, you have two minutes to say back to your wife exactly what she said to you. Go. This is what I heard you say. Go. Okay, this, is, um, this has only been like just short of a minute, but that's not unusual. So, uh, men, we're not good listeners. That's all this proves, okay? And my wife will tell you that that is true, all right? But we're not good talkers either, because now it's your turn. And you gotta tell your wife what you think and feel about what you wanna see happen as a result of your time here today in your marriage. And uh, men don't talk feelings, at least. Men don't have feelings, no, we're just tough men. We don't. I wish I could tell you stories. You know, in, in, in the Alton family, the men are allowed to cry. I had a son who went to a Christian school and the Headmaster went up to my son and tried to pin him on some legalistic piece and my son started to cry. And my son came to my office and he was crying and I embraced my son. What's gone? He says, the headmaster pinned me in the hallway and checked my collar to make sure my hair was at the right length. And I went to that headmaster and I said, don't you ever tell my, he, my son, he's in the headmaster's office, my son. Uh, he said, don't cry, men don't cry. And I went to that headmaster and I said, in my family, men are allowed to cry. See? But we don't have feelings. We don't express them. We have them, we don't express them. And we need to, as our wife needs to hear what we think and feel about a certain thing. So with that in mind, just kind of go beyond your safe spot. You know, we're, we're, we all love you. We're all here to help. You know, nobody would be here today if you, did, if you said, my marriage is, is hopeless. You wouldn't be here. You're wanting to get some pointers. We hope to give it to you. And uh, God wants you to have it. So men, your, <laughs> your, your thoughts and feelings. The question again is, what changes in our marriage would you like to see as a result of this seminar? Tell your wife. Okay, go. I'm timing you. Okay, wise, what did they just say to you? Tell them back.
Okay, let's stop. Anything to clarify that was said? You got a minute to clarify. <laughs> Something that you misunderstood. <laughs> I didn't hear that. Okay, class, repeat after me. Be honest. Keep current. Attack problems, not people. Act, don't react. Listen attentively. Again, be honest. Attack the problem, not the person. Act, don't react. Listen attentively. Uh, we will review those as we go through the rest of the day. What about the rules when the rule of communication is broken? If one sins against another person by breaking any of the rules, he should repent and ask the other person's forgiveness. See, these aren't just, they aren't our Alchin's rules. These rules have been around for a long time since Ephesians. And you know, by the way, the Ephesians had problem communicating or Paul would have needed to give them these instructions. So there's no temptation taking you but such as common to man. But when we break a rule, we need to realize it's God's rule, and we need to say, I repent, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And the other person needs to say, yes, I'll forgive you. Teach everyone in the family, even children, to think about what they said as compared to what they should have said. Remind each family member that when he backtracks to correct his speech, it proves he is serious about unity and honoring God with his speech. See, every time we say, I was wrong, will you forgive me? It strengthens our conscience to not do it again. I, I'm a proud man. I don't like to ask forgiveness because asking forgiveness says, I'm culpable, I did something wrong, and I don't particularly like to be wrong. But I need to humble myself and say, will you forgive me? Every time it does, it strengthens these rules in my life, and I can live them. If I just let them bypass, sweep them under the carpet, I will sweep it under the carpet next time, and the next time, but if I will say, I was wrong, will you forgive me? It will strengthen that. The Spirit of God will prompt that in my mind, and I will catch myself whenever I want to tell a half-truth. I will catch myself whenever I want to go to bed and leave a problem unresolved. I will catch myself whenever I said a sharp word to my wife or someone else. I will catch myself whenever I react. And I will catch myself, and I wish I could do this more often, when I don't listen attentively. Because if anything in my marriage frustrates my wife is when she's been talking to me and I turn to her and I say, what'd you say, dear? Any of you men have that same problem? Uh, if you do, there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But we need to be attentive to our wives because we value them because of who they are. Well, the, those are the five rules of communication. We're going to re revisit them this afternoon when we talk about resolving conflicts. And we're going to use those as we try to resolve something this afternoon as a practical application of what we're doing. Let's pray. Father, these are your principles. They aren't some psychologist's ideas about how to communicate. They're the God of the universe who has given us truth in a word so that we can live life and live it godly. So Lord, use these truths in the lives of these men and women. 
as they seek to build families, build their marriages in the unity and the oneness that you intended. And we'll be careful to give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Andrew.